Hey guys, and thanks for checking out this episode of the John Campia Show podcast, the audio-only version of the John Campia Show on YouTube. This episode was recorded on Wednesday, June the 17th, 2020, titled Christopher Nolan Shows How Much Control He Has Over Warner Brothers. And remember guys, you can also get a question or comment on the live questions part of the show by simply using the tip link in the description of this podcast, streamelements.com slash movieblogtv slash tip. You'll get your question or comment on the show and you'll be supporting the show at the same time. And for now, let's get to the episode. You know, one of the really exciting things that we have been waiting for to come out of Star Wars is the Obi-Wan series. They officially announced it last year at D23, then nothing. They were developing it, then all of a sudden it came off the rails. They decided they didn't like the scripts. They wanted to go back and rewrite a bunch of stuff. They've done that. Apparently they are making progress though. We still don't know when we're going to get this Obi-Wan series, but apparently they are making progress and that's good. What is also really good is that it's coming off the heels of the success of Mandalorian. More than just coming off the heels, they're going to use a lot of the technology that they use there as well, including Mandalorian's stagecraft technology. Obi-Wan himself, Hugh McGregor, uh, was being interviewed recently, and he talked about going in and making the Obi-Wan series, and he said this, I think I'm going to enjoy it much more than doing the prequels. Uh, They were all blue screen and green screen, and it was hard to imagine, but nowadays I think... Things have moved on so much, and I think a lot of what you see is going to be what we see on the set. I don't know if you've seen the behind the scenes of the Mandalorian series. Yes, we have, Ewan. But they employ that incredible screen. That's the stagecraft technology. It's pretty amazing. It makes you feel like you're in the place. It's going to feel realer for us as actors, and I think we'll be using some of that technology on our show. Of course, that comes to us from Ewan McGregor, and this is a no-brainer. I mean, really, when you stop and think about this, this is an absolute no-brainer, especially considering the director of the Obi-Wan series is one of the directors on Mandalorian, so she already has a lot of experience being in there and working with that stagecraft. If you guys have not been watching the Mandalorian behind-the-scenes documentary stuff, you really should. It's, it's actually quite fascinating, but there's an entire episode all on that stagecraft technology and how they use the stagecraft technology, this giant screen room that they use to be all their virtual sets, how it interacts with the cameras and the actors. It's absolutely amazing. We've been talking a lot about it on the show. So for them to be able to take that sort of immersive technology and also now bring it into an Obi-Wan series with one of the directors of the Obi-Wan, of Mandalorian directing the Obi-Wan series, and now they've learned how to progress and use this technology even better, I think we're going to be in for something really special. Now, they've done Mandalorian Season 2. I expect to see some new advancements from the technology they used in Season 1. But the fact that they're going to be using this for Obi-Wan is a no-brainer, but it's just nice hearing that they are going to do it. It's also interesting hearing an actor like Hugh McGregor talking about what he perceives is going to be the differences as an actor and performer acting on screen you know, in, in an environment, even though it's a digital virtual environment on screens behind him, it's interesting hearing an actor him saying that's going to make a world of difference because he can actually feel and see the environment he's in as opposed to what he had to do in the prequels, which is acting a lot in front of green screen and blue screen and all that kind of stuff. And it's going to be interesting to see what types of effects that has. I just hope they get this series moving because, man, when they made that announcement, at D23 last year, and I was there, and Ewan McGregor 
came out on stage and said, Kathy, ask me the question. Ewan, are you going to be Obi-Wan again? Yes. I mean, it was like one of those amazing moments and we all got excited and here we are like a year later and we still don't even know when this show is coming. Never mind the Cassie and Andor show or all the other stuff. They've hit a lot of bumps in the road. Hopefully you McGregor talking about this right now is a sign of good things to come. Question is for you guys. What do you think about the idea of the Obi-Wan series taking advantage and using that stagecraft technology for their series, the same stuff they did on Mandalorian? Do you think this is great news? Maybe you're not a fan of the stagecraft that they used in Mandalorian and you didn't like the look of it. That's possible too. Jump down into the comment section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's jump into one more thing off the top, and that is this. Speaking of content and material that we're all desperately waiting for and wanting to see, we've got this little movie called Black Widow that was supposed to be in theaters already. Uh, of course, the new installment of the MCU, we've been waiting for this thing. The trailers look pretty good. Now, look, you guys know my position on this. I have never been all that interested in two standalone MCU films, Hawkeye or Black Widow. To me, they're tremendous characters in the MCU that work great as supporting characters. But I've never really been all that interested in seeing a Black Widow or a Hawkeye standalone thing. But we do have this Black Widow thing coming. And I got to admit, I haven't loved all the trailers, but overall, the trailers have been pretty interesting, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. Of course, now it's not coming out until November. Well, it looks like there might be some people that get to see Black Widow like three months before the rest of us do, and that's NBA players. Now, if you're asking yourself, wait a minute, time out. Why would NBA players get to see Black Widow like three months before the rest of us? Here's what's going on, and I'll get to why I think this is actually really rather brilliant for both the NBA and for Disney. So here's what's going on. One of the repercussions, it's not just the movie industry that the whole COVID-19 thing is affected. Obviously, all the sports leagues as well have been tremendously impacted by this whole thing. So what's going on is, is that the NBA right now has plans to resume their series, their, their games, their season Starting, I believe, July 31st, but it's all going to be done at Disney World. And the resorts, they have facilities there. They're going to be able to play the games there, keep the players relatively isolated, all that kind of stuff. They're going to be able to play their season. Fantastic. Well, according to a reporter at Yahoo, Disney is going to go above and beyond to try to make the players feel really comfortable and like they're having a really good time. One of the things that they're going to be doing is making some attractions available to the NBA players and their families while they're there, including showing them films, Disney films that are not yet available. And they go out of their way in the Yahoo. The Yahoo reporter goes out of his way to mention that one of those specifically is Black Widow. Now, listen, when you think about this for a minute, it's actually rather stunningly brilliant. It's stunningly brilliant for a couple of reasons. Number one. Why not do something kind of nice for the NBA players? They all have to go there. This is for their jobs. They all got to go there. They got now, as far as prisons go, going to like Disney resorts is not a bad way to go, but still they got to go there. They got to be there the whole time, all that kind of nonsense. So it's kind of nice for them, but here's why it's brilliant for Disney because they've been sitting on this Black Widow movie now for a while. Again, we've talked about this earlier. Black Widow was supposed to be in theaters already. It's supposed to be in theaters already. Coming out in November, if they now can have not film critics, whatever, but like 
NBA players, if they can show this movie to NBA players and then tell NBA players, hey, listen, if you like it, don't spoil anything. But if you like it, uh, why don't you jump on your uh, social media and, and tell people that you saw Black Widow and tell them that you liked it if you like it? Like, why don't you do that? Go ahead and do that. It's brilliant marketing. It doesn't. Number one, it won't cost Disney anything to do this. Number two, there's nothing but upside. And number three, the advantage for us as viewers is this. You know, if the NBA players who are not movie critics, they don't give a crap. If the NBA does, if the players don't like this movie, they're going to say they don't like the movie. How I think this benefits us as fans is that it's a pretty good show of confidence on Disney's part that they really believe in this movie. If they're going to let a bunch of people they have no control over famous people with massive social media following who's going to be the first pro sports league outside of the UFC, but this is more of a league, the first pro sports league coming back. If they feel confident enough in this movie that they believe these players are going to like it, that they would show it to, because I, I believe me, if this was an Artemis Fowl situation where Disney knew the movie wasn't very good, they wouldn't be showing a movie like that to the NBA players for them to just trash. So I think to us, it suggests that they've got a lot of confidence in it. I think it's a nice little perk for the players. And I think it's brilliant free marketing for this movie. It seems like a win-win. Now, there are going to be some entitled fans that go, that's not fair. Why do they get to see it before us? Well, it's a, it's a special situation. It's a special circumstance. I think this is a great move. Question is, what do you guys think? Do you think this is a smart move on their part? Do you think it suggests that Disney is confident in the film? Or maybe it doesn't mean it at all. Jump down into the comments section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys, with that stuff down and out of the way, let's now move on to our main topics today. And how do we select our main topics here in the John Campus Show? Well, it's really rather simple. You see, you guys come up with them by going anytime 24-7 over to www.thejohncampiashow.com slash contact. Once you guys get there, you're going to see a form. Fill it out with your topic or question. It's totally free. Hit submit. And then maybe, just maybe, you might see your submission featured as a main topic here on the John Campia Show. With that down, let's move on to main topic number one. And our first main topic today gets submitted to us by Hank McCoy, beast himself, writes in, Hey, John, wondering if you saw that Ad Astra director James Gray is doing a new movie with Kate Blanchett, Robert De Niro, Donald Sutherland, Anne Hathaway, and Oscar Isaac. What an incredibly stacked cast called Armageddon Time. It's a period piece set just before the Reagan era. With this cast, it's a must-see for me, especially since I loved Ad Astra. What are your thoughts? All right, thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yeah, talk about absolutely stacked casts. I mean, this, this is impressive. Now, look, I'm going to tell you right off the bat here. One of the things that I gets me not so excited about it is that this is from James Gray, the director of Ad Astra, which I did not like all that much, but we'll go into that in a second. This is coming to us from the folks over at Joe Blow who writes, James Gray is slated to write and direct Armageddon Time, which is a big hearted coming of age story based on his own childhood memories. The story will explore friendship and loyalty against the backdrop of an America, which is poised to elect Ronald Reagan as its president. Gray is hoping that production will be able to get underway uh, uh, in New York just as soon as COVID-19 allows. One of the things that I find really interesting about this is the fact that 
he's going to write and direct it. And I looked into this because I thought maybe that was just semantic error. Like he must have already written this to get this type of a cast uh, joined on and set up to to work with him on this. He must already have it written. But what's really impressive here is that you've got a who's who lineup of incredibly, not just big names, but incredible talent lining up to work with him on this. Robert De Niro, Kate Blanchett, who, I mean, besides the street monster, Kate Blanchett might be the best actress in the world right now. Donald Sutherland, Anne Hathaway. I, I mean, Oscar Isaac is terrific. That's a great list of talent that you got lined up to work with you, especially considering he's coming off of Ad Astra. Now, look, I know there's a bunch of people out there that really liked Ad Astra. And of course, Gray worked with uh, uh, Donald Sutherland, who was also in that movie with him. So he'll be working with him again. I found Ad Astra to honestly be one of the most boring movies I've seen in a long time. I mean, it's just nothing ever happened in it. And it had like one tone throughout. It had this kind of a tone. And yeah, let's let's get lunch. Okay, I'm going to go fly into space now. Like, it's just that tone was like running through the whole movie. And for me, it made it very difficult to watch. You know, there are some people who really loved it and enjoyed it. And that's great. Didn't work so well for me. But I at least have to admit, I have some degree of interest in this. If for nothing else, then I do like this notion of it kind of being a coming of age idea. I love, I, I do get a kick out of movies where it's like the director kind of drawing their influence for a story based on you know their experiences growing up there whenever a filmmaker can make something really personal there is a lot of potential there for something special doesn't mean it will be but there's at least potential there for that all i can think of is if he's able even though i didn't like ad astra if he was able to give his true pitch to this level of talent and have them all sign up for it there's got to be something there. So I will say this. I will, as far as it comes to Armageddon time, I'm going to be cautiously interested. Let's say that. Cautiously interested. We'll see how that evolves. Question is, guys, what do you think about the sounds of Armageddon time? Maybe you were a big fan of Ad Astra and you think anything this guy does next, I'm going to be interested in seeing. Maybe you're like me and you didn't like Ad Astra, but this talent lineup looks pretty good. How are you feeling about it? Jump into the comments section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys, with that down and out of the way, let's move on to main topic number two. And our second main topic today gets submitted to us by Steve Calderon, who writes, Ghostbusters Afterlife director Jason Reitman. I love Jason Reitman. Thank you for smoking, Juno, uh, up in the air, on and on. I, I just love this. I think he's a tremendous. I, I even like him more than his dad. I even like him more than uh, Ivan Reitman. Anyway, Afterlife director uh, Jason Reitman revealing on Josh Gad's Reunited Apart series that he is already developing another installment of the franchise despite COVID-19, pushing Afterlight's release date back to March 5th, 2021. Do you think this is a good sign that Sony is very happy with Jason's Ghostbusters film and confident it will be successful? All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And for those of you who maybe haven't heard about this, so Josh Gad is doing this incredible thing online right now, which is like the second best thing going on other than John Krasinski's Some Good News. Uh, Josh Gad has been doing this thing where he gets reunions of people. Like he did with the Lord of the Rings cast and others. He gets these movie reunions on Zoom calls and just talks to them. It's really a great idea that he's been doing. It's been pretty cool. Well, he just did one with the Ghostbusters cast. And talking to Jason Reitman 
about Afterlife. And you may have seen these headlines running around that Jason Reitman confirms he's already working on a follow-up to Ghostbusters Afterlife. Well, that might not be true. Now, I went and watched the video myself, and I thought it was a little gray about whether or not that's what he was actually saying. But the good folks over at Slash Film took a, a more, I guess you could say, definitive position. The folks at Slash Film were saying, no, Jason Reitman is not saying he's working on a follow-up to Ghostbusters Afterlife. And here's the argument they made for that. This is, again, coming to us from the good folks at uh, Slash Film. When reading the quote in text form, Jason Reitman's wording may seem like he's confirming work on a sequel to Ghostbusters Afterlife, but it's Josh Gad's phrasing of the lead-in that provides the proper context, especially when you watch the moment in the video above. This is They played the video, obviously. Josh Gad says, So far on, Re on Reunited Apart, Every movie we've done has had no further installments. So like, uh, yeah, so whenever they've done, talked about a particular movie, it didn't have a further installment after that. But you guys have been working on a little sequel. Can you tell us anything? And if so, what can you tell us? This is where Jason Reitman responds. Yeah, no, I, can, I can't tell you anything, but we are working on another installment. Reitman isn't saying that they're working on another sequel, but he's referring to Ghostbusters Afterlife as another installment. So that's where some of the confusion comes into play here. A bunch of people are taking what Jason Reitman said and running with, oh, he said they're working on another installment. That means they're working on another installment after Ghostbusters Afterlife, where really you could read it as it's as he's saying, no, Ghostbusters Afterlife is the another installment. We're working on another installment of Ghostbusters and it's called Ghostbusters Afterlife. That's what we're working on. So You've got a lot of people running around, understandably so, because the way it is phrased, it is very confusing. There are sometimes people run with headlines. It's like, oh, come on, guys. You got you can't be serious. But this is one of those situations where, yeah, you could totally see how people would see it that way. Like if you watch the interview, it totally kind of sounds like that. But then when Slash Film puts it in that context and you're kind of like, oh, no, no, he wasn't talking about that. Look, personally, I'm on the side right now, although I can be convinced otherwise. I'm on the side right now of uh, believing that Jason Reitman was not talking about doing a Ghostbusters Afterlife sequel. I think he was strictly talking about Ghostbusters Afterlife. But I could totally see why some people would interpret it otherwise. And there may be some credibility to that. I I'm not sure. Listen, let's play the game here for a second and say, uh, what if... What if, indeed, they are talking about doing a sequel, a sequel to Ghostbusters Afterlife? Is that a good move at this point? Well, I mean, theoretically speaking, it could be a brilliant move. I mean, look, if they were moving forward right now, and this is a huge if, and I don't think they are, but if they are moving forward already on developing a sequel to Ghostbusters Afterlife, then yeah, that would say to us as an audience that... The studio has really big confidence in the way this Ghostbusters movie is turning out. It would be nothing but a positive thing. So that's great. The problem, though, is, is that Reitman's not even done his work on Ghostbusters Afterlife. So I don't see him, you know, oh, yeah, today I'm going to work from one to five on Ghostbusters Afterlife. But then from six to eight, I'm going to work on a Ghostbusters Afterlife sequel. I... I just don't see that being the case, although it could be. So my position right now is I'm taking the position that I don't think he was talking about a sequel to Ghostbusters Afterlife. Although if he was, it's a positive sign, 
but I don't think he was. The question is for you guys. What do you think he was talking about? Was Reitman talking about doing a sequel to Ghostbusters Afterlife or was he only talking about Ghostbusters Afterlife itself? And if he was talking about a sequel, do you think that's a good sign for this movie and the confidence the studio has in it? It's a big ball of confusion right now, but tell me what you guys think. How are you interpreting it? Jump down into the comment section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to main topic number three. And our third main topic today gets submitted to us by Geeky Gator, who writes, Hey, John and crew. So I recently read on the New York Times that Warner Brothers wanted to further postpone Tenet, because you guys remember, Tenet was just postponed by two whole weeks from July 17th to July 31st. I just read in the New York Times that Warner Brothers wanted to further postpone Tenet as they were concerned about their investment, but kept it into July to please Christopher Nolan. A few weeks ago, it was also revealed that Nolan is going to get 20% of the film's first dollar gross, which is insane. Nolan seems to have Warner Brothers on a leash. Should a director be able to control a big film studio this much. All right. Thanks for sending that in, man. And yeah, that's that's a big question right here. So let's give a little bit of background to this. Christopher Nolan was very, very vocal on the fact that he wanted his movie Tenant to be one of the, the if not the first and the first big new release movie out there to get people back into the movie theaters. Christopher Nolan is a hardcore believer in the movie theater experience. That's the only way he thinks people should see movies. That's the way he thinks the best movie viewing experiences are. And he believes in the movie theater going experience extremely. So he wanted that release date of July 17th. Now, it was clear, or at least it became clear, that the movie theaters we're not going to be open in time to have a bit of a buildup before July 17th. Like they were going to be open by July 17th, but they need to be open before July 17th and before it enough to have a couple of weeks to get the word out that the theaters are open again, to get the word out that the movies are here, to build some word of mouth, get people back into the habit of coming back to the movie theaters. And so they delayed it to the 31st to give the movie theaters a few more weeks. Well, apparently now... The story that's going around, this came to us from the New York Times, is that Christopher Nolan made Warner Brothers keep that date in July, that Warner Brothers actually wanted to move it to near the end of the year, maybe even into 2021, but Christopher Nolan insisted he wanted it kept in July. He wanted it kept in July almost right away. And I understand Christopher Nolan is the film's director. He's not the distributor. He should have no say in that sort of thing, but they wanted to please him. This is what comes to us out of the New York Times. They wrote this. In recent weeks, Warner, concerned about its tenant investment, because remember, it's their money. It's their money that, that's being spent here. Concerned about its tenant investment, was leaning in favor of postponement. While Mr. Lo Nolan, a fervent advocate for preserving the movie-going experience, was more eager to press ahead. The discussions amounted to a fraught moment for Warner. Mr. Nolan is a proven moneymaker and the studio wants to keep him happy, which of course is 
no kidding. Of course, you want to keep Christopher Nolan happy. So this brings up a question that Geeky Gator was asking in, in his main question. Should a director have that kind of power over a studio? Now, remember, a director's job is to make a movie. That's what they're gifted in. That's what they're skilled in. They're skilled in telling stories. They're not business executives. They're not distributors. And I would say under most circumstances, a director should have no say in when a movie is released. That's not your area of expertise. If you don't want some movie executive to bud their nose into to, into your area of expertise, then you keep your nose out of their area of expertise. You just make your movie, make it the best way you can, and then you leave the distribution and all that kind of stuff up to the people who know that better than you do because it's their money and, their, and it's their movie. So most of the time, I would say no. No director should have that kind of power over a studio, especially considering no, I have no idea how Warner Brothers agreed to give Christopher Nolan, who is one of the best directors in the world, 20% of the box office. Do you know what that means? If, if Tenet were to make a billion dollars, and I'm not saying it's going to make a billion dollars, but if Tenet makes a billion dollars, Christopher Nolan's going to get a $200 million paycheck. $200 million. Warner Brothers is already going to be scrapping to make money on this movie. And that ain't going to help. So on top of the fact that he's getting 20% of the box office, he's now telling them when to release the movie. Under normal circumstances, I would say no, that should not be the case. However, there are exceptions, in my opinion, to every rule. There are exceptions to every rule. There are rules. And those rules should be followed. But even the most hardcore of rules, there, there are exceptions here and there. And I would suggest that Chris, keeping Christopher Nolan happy at Warner Brothers has to be a high priority for Warner Brothers. Listen, there's a couple, things you, a couple things you need to understand about Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers is one of the last remaining studios that truly values its place in the art. They love the movie business. They really do. I've talked to a lot of people at Warner Brothers. They love the movie business and they love the filmmaking art. And it's even bit them in the ass sometimes that they give filmmakers a little bit too much leeway and it, it doesn't always work out. But they really believe they, they understand their place in Hollywood history and all that kind of stuff. When you understand that Christopher Nolan is one of the absolute best filmmakers in the world right now. Some would argue he might be the best filmmaker. We're doing it right now. And how much Warner Brothers values working with him because his movies don't just make them money. Christopher Nolan's movies gives them prestige. Not to be confused with his movie, The Prestige. His movies bring the studio prestige. His movies bring the studio honor. And his movies bring the studio money. All the things that Warner Brothers values highly. The prestige, the money, the honor, and the panache of saying we're the studio. That they would say the best filmmaker in the world today works with. Us, Warner Brothers. When you're in a situation like that, I think you get into the territory of 
the exception to the rule. Listen, I just said, I don't think filmmakers should have that much power over the business side of things. I don't think, think they should be given that much leeway. They should stick to what it is that they do and do well and just focus on that. Let business, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. But I think when it comes to Christopher Nolan, it's a little bit different. Let's, let's do what I often do, which is throw out a little bit of a sports analogy. A player on an NBA team should not have control over or say over what the general manager does who the general manager trades for and all that kind of stuff. Generally, that shouldn't be the case. But listen, if you're a team that has LeBron James, you make an exception. When LeBron James says, I want this guy traded, you trade him. When LeBron James says, we need to acquire this position in this position, you go out and get him. There's a reason why LeBron James took three different teams to seven straight NBA finals. And so when he talks, you, you kind of listen. And there have been other athletes that are on that level as well, but they're a very, very small select group of players that you can put into that category. Just like I would say, I think there's a very, very small select group of filmmakers that you can give that kind of leeway to. I, I, would, I would argue right now there's only three directors in all of Hollywood who get that kind of leeway. Christopher Nolan, Steven Spielberg, and Quentin Tarantino. I think, and, and Quentin Tarantino... I mean, I think you do that for the honor, the panache. We do Tarantino films, but you know, they, they don't make the same money that Christopher Nolan films do. So I only think there's three directors in all of Hollywood who make that exception. And I think if you're Warner Brothers and these are your values, the prestige, the honor, the money, and all studios is money, but this is a filmmaker that brings them all. Maybe you say to yourself, you know what? We're willing. Let's say this turns out to be disastrous. Let's say we end up losing money on Tenant because of when we're releasing it and how much we're paying Chris. That might be worth it for the next three or four films you're going to make with Chris, right? Okay, we take a loss right now. We take a loss right now. But it makes sure that Christopher Nolan knows that we value him. It keeps Christopher Nolan wanting to still work with us. And so we'll make three or four movies with him and we'll more than cover whatever losses we have with Tenet. Again, I don't think that sort of leeway should be given to almost any filmmakers, but I think when you're Warner Brothers and you're talking about Christopher Nolan, I think that's the exception. And, and yeah, if Christopher Nolan says, I want to keep this movie in July, it's important to me. I think it's important to the film industry. I think it's important to the theater industry. It means very, very much to me, Warner Brothers, to keep this movie here. If you're Warner Brothers, you go, well, this is stupid. But let's keep them happy because we might lose money right now, but we're going to continue to make money with this guy moving forward. So let's say, OK, Chris, whatever you want. I don't like it in general. But I think there are exceptions. I think Christopher Nolan is that exception. So listen, guys, I wanted to know what you guys thought about that. So I decided to make that the topic of today's question of the day. And the question of the day, simply, I put this up just before the show started. And I asked you guys a simple question. Uh, the major trades report that Warner Brothers wanted to move Tenet further out, but kept it in July because director Christopher Nolan insisted. Considering Nolan is also getting paid 20% of Tenet's box office, should a director like Christopher Nolan have that much control? Let me just expand this a bit. Have that much power over a studio? We discussed this and more. A little over 3,300 of you guys have already voted on this poll. And 69% of you uh, seem to be in agreement with me here. Yes, he's Christopher Nolan. 
maybe not other directors, but Christopher Nolan, whereas a full 31% of you saying like, no, man, no director should have that much power and control over what a studio does. Uh, If you guys, by the way, want to participate in this poll, it is in the community tab of the John Campia YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel so you guys can also participate in our daily question of the day polls there. So that's where we're at right now. 69% of you saying, yep. 31% of you are saying no. Question is, guys, what do you guys watching right now think about that? Jump down into the comment section below and leave me your thoughts. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to our fourth and final main topic today. And our fourth and final main topic today gets submitted to us by Andrew Murray, who writes... You probably won't have seen the news, but over here in the UK, news has reached of Cineworld Cinemas reopening across England on July 10th. The website has a list of the new safety rules for that opening date. Wondered what you and the crew make of the news. All right. Thanks a lot for sending that in, man. And yes, we have heard. Now, of course, this is why this is important to everybody. Cineworld is the biggest theater chain in the UK, but it's also the theater chain that owns Regal the number two theater chain in America. And they have come out and said that Cineworld and Regal are going to be fully open by July 10th. This comes to us from the folks over at CNN who writes, Cineworld Group, the owner of Regal Cinemas, will begin reopening movie theaters next week following a three-month shutdown due to the coronavirus pandemic. The company said in a statement Tuesday that it was planning to open all of its theaters by July 10th, with screenings of Mulan, Wonder Woman 84, and director Christopher Nolan's new film Tenet on the upcoming slate. And of course, Wonder Woman just got pushed back a little bit further. So that's where we're at right now. It's it's they're saying it's official. We are going to be open. We're going to start our opening process in the next couple of weeks, and we're going to have all of our theaters open by July 10th with the new safety procedures. Now, what we're seeing as far as the safety procedures go seems pretty standard across the boards. Uh, All employees, staff will have masks and gloves and have certain cleaning procedures. The uh, all the theaters will be completely um, be uh, disinfected at the beginning of each day. There's going to be cleaning processes done in between every screening. They're going to have limited seating capacity. Hand sanitizer is going to be available all over the place. Uh, Blah, blah, blah. So all these safety procedures they're they're putting in place for this to happen. They're going to be open by the 10th. Now, this is interesting. Because it kind of goes back to that notion we were talking about before of the fact that, you know, Tenant needed movie theaters to be open more than just a week before Tenant opened. They needed people to be able to get back into the habit of going to the movies again. And one week wasn't going to be enough. And I'm sure Warner Brothers has been in constant communication with AMC, with Regal, with Cineworld and all their partners around the world. And they determined that, yep, okay, one week isn't enough. But if you can be open by July 10th, even though we don't want to open on July 31st, Chris wants us to stay in July. We think 31st can work. And therefore, there you have it. So now this is pretty much every major chain is now pretty much officially announced they're going to be open by the middle of July. They're all going to be open there. This brings up an interesting conundrum that our entire society and culture has been facing recently, of course, is how do we deal with movie going and things like that with a pandemic going on, especially in the United States where we've been seeing in the United States recently, new spikes in certain areas of the country. Whereas a lot of other countries 
have pretty much dealt with the problem in the United States in some areas it's just getting worse to me and I know I'm going to ruffle some feathers when I say this and, and I don't say this with the intention of ruffling feathers believe me so please take this as just me giving my thought and my opinion on this okay so you've heard me say the last couple of days the issue is not about waiting for coronavirus to go away. It's about us learning how to adapt our behavior to deal with it while it's out there, right? The coronavirus isn't gone, but we can adapt our behavior to deal with it while it's out there. And when you've got all these countries that have seen their coronavirus stuff drop like a rock in the river, I mean, it's great. It's awesome seeing how a lot of these countries, especially when you look at like a country like Italy, how massively hard hit it was and how they have now coped with it and dealt with it. They did a lot of hardcore things. They got it under control. You see a lot of other places around the world. New Zealand's a great example under control. What happened in those cultures was every one of its citizens took very seriously the responsibility of let's adapt our behavior to make sure we deal with this. You know, Ann and I were out in downtown. We were in San Diego uh, last weekend celebrating our 10th anniversary. And it was a little worrisome for us. Like we went to one restaurant. Let me back up. We showed up at our hotel and it was great. They had big, massive social distancing. They had hand sanitizers right at the door. They required you be wearing a mask when you enter the hotel. The, the rooms, there was no two people had rooms close to each other. They completely cleaned the rooms. They had all these procedures in place that made my wife and I feel very safe. And we felt, yeah, they're conducting themselves in such a way that it's not impossible that we could get the coronavirus, but they've really limited the risk. And then we as individuals... My wife and I, we choose to take steps to minimize the risk of everything that we do, of us either getting the disease or spreading the disease. Heaven forbid that I am an asymptomatic carrier of COVID. A lot of people have it and don't even know they have it. Heaven forbid. So when I go out, yeah, you're damn right. You make fun of it all you want. But I take my responsibility as a person to my fellow human beings very seriously. And so when I go out and walk the dogs, I go out for like a three mile walk at night or whatever, I wear, I put on the mask because heaven forbid that I'm a carrier and I want to make sure if I cross anybody on the street or whatever, that I don't inadvertently pass something on to them. And they've already shown that if we act responsibly and do the right things, we really do minimize the risk. We don't eliminate it, but we minimize it. If we just do the little things to be smart, I believe Getting back to this whole regal opening up thing, and you guys have heard me say this on this show in, in the past couple of weeks. I really believe that if people act responsibly, and if these theaters really do put these safety measures in place, I personally feel a lot safer going into a movie theater than I do a restaurant. You know, Ann and I went into a restaurant in San Diego, and it was great. Same thing, hand sanitizers at the door. They did a temperature check of everybody who came in. They required you wear a mask when you first enter in. And then they had all the tables separated quite a bit. We were not within seven or eight feet of anybody else sitting at any other table. And we felt pretty comfortable there. And, and I'm just saying, if theaters really do follow through that with, with their procedures, I'm going to feel more comfortable there than I am in a restaurant. 
or that I am at a, a, at a bar or I am walking around in a grocery store, I'm going to feel much more comfortable. Again, it doesn't eliminate anything, but it does minimize things. And I think we can do that. The problem is we live in a society and a culture right now, particularly here in the U.S., where a lot of people do not take their responsibility to others very seriously. Screw it. It's my freedom. What are you talking about your freedom? You're wearing a mask. This has nothing to do with your freedom. Shut up. Anyway, I said I wasn't trying to ruffle any feathers. I'm going to try not to ruffle any feathers. But anyway, I just think if people act responsibly, we can get through this and get through it well. And the problem is we've been seeing all these spikes because we see, you know, places opening up and everybody thinks, oh, so the 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 uh, the danger's behind us now. Oh, everything's fine now. Now we can just, oh, oh pandemic's over, everybody. No, it's not. But we can deal with it if we're all personally responsible and if businesses do the right things. And we're seeing reports in the news about restaurants opening and they're not following safety procedures and they're packing every table, even with people sitting close to each other. And then we wonder, oh my gosh, why are all the cases spiking in all these different states? Gosh, I wonder. I think this can work. I really do. If businesses and if individuals take responsibility. And, and act appropriately, I think we can do this. But that's just my thoughts. And believe me, I am no doctor. Uh, but I've been reading a lot of sites, like whether it's the Health Clinic Mayo, I've been reading the CDC reports, I've been all that kind of stuff. And it just seems like we can manage this because other countries are showing that they can. And if they can do it, you're damn right we can do it. So anyway, that's my thought on that. I'm sure there's a And listen, my opinion may change in two weeks. Seriously, my opinion may change in two weeks, but that's how I think about it right now. Question is, guys, what do you think about Regal now being the latest with Cineworld being the major theater chains announcing that they're going to be fully open by July the 10th? What do you think about that? Jump down to the comment section below and let me know your thoughts. All right, guys, with that down, we're now going to move into the main or to, into our uh, live questions and comments part of the show. Again, you guys can send in a question or comment to be on the show right now. Simply use the tip link that's in the description of the video. You can just go click on it or you can enter it here. Streamelements.com slash TV slash tip. You'll be getting your question on the show and you'll be supporting the show at the same time. So it's a double win. Thank you so much for that, guys. All right. You know what? We're not going to take a break today either. We're just going to roll right into it. We're just going to roll right into it, and hopefully my voice will hold out. So let's get things started here. We're going to start things off with Willow, who writes, According to the articles on the Oscars' new rules, the British Film Institute has introduced a diversity and inclusion criteria last year. Do you know about their standards and their requirements? Maybe the Oscars will have something similar. Yeah, now I don't want to go into it too deep right here, because I'm doing, let me just bring up this up. I just happened to have this open the other day, or last night, so let me let me bring it up here for you guys. So obviously, you know, yesterday on the show, we talked about the fact that the Oscars have announced that they're looking at having diversity requirements for eligibility for Oscar movies. Now, on the one hand, yay progress. But on the other hand, I don't believe that's the Oscars role. I believe the Oscars are meant to be there to simply adjudicate what was the best acting performance this year, regardless of the race, color, or creed of the actor. What was the best movie of the year, regardless of whatever the movie is or is about, what was the best movie of the year? And there should not be all these other criteria to make you eligible. But, I mean, I said on yesterday's show, it's hard to get to be too against it when I don't know what the rules are. They're just being very vague. So as Willow is just alluding to, 
Um, there is the fact is that the that BAFTA and the BFI, the British Film Institute, they have already implemented some rules, and apparently they're talking to the Oscars. And if it's something similar, it's actually not that bad as I feared. It's not as bad as I feared if it's something similar. Let, let me just bring this up here quickly. So this is, of course, remember the British Academy with their rules, but the Oscars are talking to them. Here's how it would work. Okay. So basically the idea is you have to, there's a bunch of different criteria and you have to meet like three of them. Okay. You have to meet like three of them. Criteria number one is on-screen representation, themes, and narratives. But to get qualified for that, to call that, yes, we've got that one, all you have to do is meet two or three out of these six possible things, right? Like uh, at least one of the lead characters, contributors, presenters, voice artists is from an underrepresented group. That doesn't mean you have to have that in your movie, but that's just one of the six things. All you need to do is meet three of them. Uh, a possibility number two, other characters in your movie that aren't leads are representative of underrepresented groups like 50-50 uh, gender balance, 20% belonging to an underrepresented group, 10% are from the LGBTQ community, 7% are deaf or disabled. Like, And you don't even have to meet all of these things. You don't, to get A2, you don't even have to have all of these things. You only have to meet one. Either 50% gender, gender balance, 20% belonging to an underrepresented ethnic group, 10% LGBTQ, 7% deaf or disabled, significant amount of contributors to the competitors, resident life in the UK. Well, that's a UK specific thing. Anyway, all you have to do to get standard A is meet just one of these things, just one. And if you get just one of those things, it counts and you get A2 credited to you. Anyway, then you go down. Uh, there's the possible standard B, creative leadership and teams. Again, you only have to do two of these four things. And some of them, they're actually fairly reasonable. And if you do just two of these things, you get a check mark for B. Uh, standard C, industry access and opportunities. Again, you only have to, out of these five possibilities, you only have to meet two of them. And if you do, you get a check mark for C. And you don't even have to get check marks for all of them. I think you only have to get check marks for two of them. I got to say, you guys watched the show yesterday, knew I was pretty concerned about this. Because to me, the Oscar should just be about saying what is best with a blindfold on. Just what was best. I don't care who made it. I don't care what gender, ethnic background, sexual orientation. I don't care what they are. Just what is best should be deemed the best. And I was very, very worried when I heard about them having eligibility requirements. I got to say, only based on my initial perusing of these outlines from the British Film Academy, I got to say it's not that bad. It actually seems pretty re fairly reasonable and fairly easy to accomplish. Like, I don't, I, I would, I would almost bet that 70% of the movies being made in Hollywood today probably already meet these requirements. I don't know that. There's no scientific study. I'm just speaking out of my ass here, but I would I would guess 65 to 70% of the movies being made today would probably already meet these standards. And for the other 30% of the movies, it'd probably be a really easy thing to do. And it's not as draconian as I was afraid it would be. 
So I don't know. Again, I just perused this document for the first time last night and I read through it a little bit. I need to hear from the academy what are what kind of rules, what ways are they going to implement the rules, all that kind of stuff. But just to say right now, and I, I want more time to go over it, but I'm not as worried about it today as I was yesterday. Because if it's something like what the British Academy is doing, it's actually not as bad as I feared. It's actually not as bad, which is one of the reasons why I said it's hard to get too excited or too angry about it when we don't know what the actual rules are. If it's like this, it, that's that's fairly reasonable if it's like that. But I'm sure let's let's take some more time and really see how this thing turns out, Willow. All right. Thanks for bringing that up. All right. Luke, one, two, three, four writes. Uh, with the Oscars adding more diversity, uh, diversity people uh, will then. OK, with, with the Oscars adding more diversity, comma, commas are our friend. Uh, people will then complain it wasn't diverse enough. Uh, winners for every race, every sexual orientation, every religious background, etc. Everyone will be a winner and the Oscars will become a particip uh, participation trophies. Listen, Luke, I'll be honest with you. When I first heard about diversity requirements for eligibility, that sort of thing, what you're just saying, was one of the things I was afraid of. But reading what the BAFTAs have done and the BFI have done, it actually feels a lot more reasonable than I was afraid of. I, I got to say, it sounds more reasonable than I was afraid of. And I, I think, again, I would encourage everybody to go and find those BAFTA requirements and, and read them over yourself because it really, when you read them, it's like, this isn't that hard. This is actually pretty easy, and I bet a lot of movies are already doing it. So so I, I don't think this is a worst-case scenario like maybe some of us were a little bit afraid. And again, listen, you, if you saw the show yesterday, you know I had a problem with this. And I'm still not comfortable with it per se, but when I look over the rules they're proposing, it's not that bad. But anyway, I'm sure we'll have more discussions of this as time goes on. All right, Quirky Joe writes, one of two. Hey, John and crew. Hello there, Quirky Joe. I've been delving deeper into the 1980s after last week discovering Dreamscape, which we just talked about on the show a few weeks ago, where Dennis Quaid invades your dreams, uh, Q, winged serpent, attacks sunbathing New Yorkers, and 10 to midnight, Charles Bronson's uh, chases nude serial killer. Two to this week, I've seen Liquid Sky. I've not seen Liquid Sky. Uh, aliens come to take our drugs and orgasms. <laughs> Okay. Yep. I know. I've never seen that. Uh, the Sacrifice, Somber and Tchaikovsky, and The Deadly Spawn. I, I'm not familiar with The Deadly Spawn either. Face Munching Horror. Uh, are there any cult movies from long ago that you've discovered more recently? Uh, long live the 80s. Oh, like classic 80s that I haven't seen and just discovered recently. Hmm. You know what? I I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I think most of the, like the real true like cult classics, stuff like that, I've been lucky enough to get caught up on a long time ago. I can't think of any off the top of my head. But man, you know, we were talking the other day, Quirky Joe, about 80s movies. And the funny thing about them is that other than black and white and picture quality, a lot of movies from different eras you can just watch and whatever. But 80s movies... When you start watching an 80s movie, let's say you've never heard of it, just pop in a movie, you can instantly tell when a movie's from the 80s. You know what I mean? Like the 80s just had their own, and every genre, every genre, 80s horror, 80s comedy, 80s rom-com, 80s action, like almost every genre was so distinctly 80s 
it's almost impossible to miss. It makes it one of the most special movie era times uh, of all time. So I'm glad you've been able to start getting caught up on those, Quirky Joe. All right, next up, Ryan Loner writes, uh, one of two. Uh, for me, Pride Month, uh, I'll give a shout out, and it is Pride Month, I'll give a shout out to my all-time favorite book, which never seems to get any credit for having perhaps the very first heroic gay couple in mainstream entertainment. All the way back to 1844, The Count of Monte Cristo, their names are... Uh, Eugene and Luis, and many people haven't heard of them since they're cut out of almost every film adaptation so far, except a BBC miniseries from 1966. Yeah, I was surprised too. That one's that one's entirely on YouTube. If you're curious, you know what? To prove your point, Ryan, I wasn't aware of that. I wasn't aware of that. Well done. That, that proves your point. You know what's really funny? Like, I need to give you a little bit of my my background. <clears throat> When I was living in Canada, um, you know, I lived in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, the hammer, uh, my hometown, greatest city in the world. I, I didn't really, I think I knew one gay person. I think I knew one gay person my, the entire time I lived in Canada that I knew of, right? And so I, I, it just really wasn't part of my life experience. When I moved to L.A., I moved into an apartment on Sunset Boulevard, right on the border of West Hollywood. So I was technically in Hollywood because I was on Sunset uh, right by La Brea. So I was technically in Hollywood, but I was literally like a, a, a six minute walk up Sunset and I'm in West Hollywood. And West Hollywood is is like the San Francisco of LA. It's a lot of gay pride in, in West Hollywood. And in my first week um, being in LA, a couple of girlfriends of mine took me out, decided to take me out to a bar. And I'm, I think it was called the, the Abbey. I think it was called the Abbey. I think that's the name of it. Anyway, they decided for my first night out in LA, they were going to take me to this really famous, I'm saying famous, but I'm freezing on the name. I think it's called the Abbey. They decided to take me to this really famous gay bar. And I have, listen, I, I'm this Canadian uh, dude from up north, very little exposure to that stuff before. And it was like, it was such a cultural education for me. So that first, my first big night out with a bunch of friends, a couple of my girlfriends took me out to this gay bar in, in West Hollywood. And it was, I'm not, I'm not joking. It was the stereotype of what you would see if some friends in a movie, some friends took another friend to a gay bar in this big elaborate wild kind of environment it was all of that it was all of that and i was such a fish underwater i gotta tell you it was weird for me at first but by the end of the night i was like this is really fun this place is great and it was again for me it which it just made me realize like spending one week in la how culturally different canada and the u.s can really be we are very very canada and the u.s are very very similar pop culturally Pop culturally, we're very similar. We share we share the exact identical pop culture for the most part, but culturally, we're still very different. And I remember that was a that was a very very different and very new experience for me for a guy who admittedly knew very little about anything, but it was an introduction for me. Anyway, Ryan, thank you for pointing that out, man. It's really good that you did because I and I like Count of Monte Cristo, and I was not aware of that. I was not aware of that. All right, next up, James L. H. writes, "Hey, John." 
Artemis Fowl never read the book, but a shame about the film. Didn't hate it, but just okay. Strange, I just bought Jaws and then see Robert Shaw's grandson in his first acting role. Uh, just hope the bad reviews don't knock him and the other young actors. Yeah, again, I haven't watched it yet. I thought about watching it last night. Um, last night, about 9.30, Ann and I had a little bit of time. And I'm like, hey, should should we watch that Artemis Fowl? And Ann gave me this look. Like, cause she heard, she heard it's pretty bad. So I was like, okay, we won't watch it. I'm still going to try to watch it though. If just for no other reason than it's Kenneth Branagh, you know, I'm a big Kenneth Branagh fan. And even if the movie sucks, I at least want to watch it. Um, but yeah, here's hoping. I mean, again, it all depends. I don't, maybe the kid actors are terrible and I don't know. And if they are, maybe they shouldn't do it anymore, but if they do, okay, here's hoping that it doesn't hurt them too much. All right. Next up Topher rocks writes. I wanted to voice my dislike for the new Batmobile. Really? Uh, it's cool, but I just don't see a bat, a, a man in a Batsuit with a long cape driving around in a fairly normal American muscle car. Uh, it just doesn't look right to me when I picture it in my head. Maybe I'm weird. But, you know, the thing is, I think even when the Tumblr, you know, in Batman Begins, when the Tumblr was introduced, there was a lot of people at first that were like, that doesn't look like the Batmobile. That looks like a G.I. Joe tank. It doesn't look like the Batmobile. I mean, to a lot of people still, when you think about the Batmobile, they go back to the, you know, um, Adam West uh, version of Batman. And that was the Batmobile, right? That was the Batmobile. And you know what? The thing is, the Batmobile, at least to me, um, the Batmobile to me is much like the Joker in Batman stories. Because like in every Batman iteration, They've tried everybody who's done the Joker has tried to do a character that is distinctly Joker, yet distinctly unique from all the other Jokers, right? Whether it's in Gotham or whether it's in the animated series or whether it's um, uh, Heath Ledger or whether it's Jared Leto or whether it's, uh, uh, you know, whatever, which whether it's Cesar Romero, whatever you try to make it. This is clearly the Joker, but it's clearly a very different Joker from any Joker you've seen before. And that followed all the way through to Joaquin Phoenix as well. I feel like the Batmobile gets that treatment as well. We need to make something that as soon as you look at it, okay, that's the Batmobile, but we also want to make it very distinct and unique from any other Batmobile that we've had on the big screen before. And that's always an interesting thing. I, I don't really have too strong of an opinion one way or the other because, again, I've only seen a still picture of it, a not well-lit still picture is all I've really seen of it. I want to be able to see it in action to see how it works. So until that time, I'm going to reserve judgment, but let's see how that one works out. All right, next up, Dizzy Moose writes, Hey, John, one of the sequels I always wanted was a sequel to is Chronicle. Me too, man. Uh, it was a different type of superhero movie, and the more I watch it, the more I appreciate it. Uh, do think... Do you think we will ever get a direct sequel? No. And there's been a lot of talk about Chronicle for a long time, but I, I think, unfortunately, the window for a Chronicle sequel has closed a while ago because that movie was... What year did it come out? Hold on a sec. Hey, Google. What year did Chronicle come out? Let's see if it knows what I'm talking about. In the United States of America, Chronicle was released on February 3rd, 2012. 2012. So, oh, God, is it eight years? Eight years? Yeah, I, I and it yeah, I think it's come and gone. Not to mention all the all the drama, which I like Josh Trank actually quite a bit, but all the drama that's gone on with Josh Trank, and then all the drama that's gone on with the writer, 
uh, of the movie and all that kind of stuff. I I just don't see it happening. But I was I was with you. I wanted for the first couple of years, I desperately wanted to hear them going back to make another one. And they never did. They tried a couple of times. They had just a lot of creative differences and they can never get it. And now, unfortunately, I think the window is closed. But I love that movie. I think Chronicle is great. All right. Skeletor Angel writes, my name is Luke. I am 13. Uh, I have been watching the YouTube show with my dad, uh, my dad, Robbie, every night. Oh, that's awesome, man. Thanks for watching the show. Uh, I was wondering what your recommendations are for a good movie we can watch together. I like comedies. Thanks. Ooh, a good comedy that you guys can watch together. Let me let me check on something here before I, I, I say anything for sure, because uh, I don't want to say anything uh, that gets me in trouble. Um, okay. I just, I just want to make sure I don't get in any trouble here. All right. I think dodgeball dodgeball is one I'll recommend. I think dodgeball is awesome. I, I love this movie. You have no idea how much I love this movie. This is this dodgeball is one of my top 10 favorite comedies uh, of all time. Nobody makes me bleed my own blood. I love this movie. Now, the reason I, I wanted to hesitate for a second was I was pretty sure it was PG-13 and not R-rated R, but I just went back just to double check because I didn't want to accidentally recommend an R-rated film for you and your dad to watch together. But if you guys haven't seen Dodgeball, I love this film. And not only does it have like Ben Stiller and stuff like that, it's also got Justin Long in it, who I'm a big fan of. Um, and it's got, oh, um, why am I freezing on his name? Uh, I love this guy, Alan Tudyk. Alan Tudyk is in it as the as a pirate Steve. Gotta watch it. I really love Dodgeball. Go give you guys should sit down and watch it if you haven't watched it yourselves already. But that would be my recommendation if you want to have a good laugh and you can watch it together. That's one that I'll pull out of my uh, out of my sleeve, and you guys should check that one out. Thanks for writing in, Skeletor Angel. I appreciate that. All right, Cal Al writes, uh, uh, Lara Lorvan. He will be an outcast. They'll kill him. Jorel. How? He'll be a god to them. Uh, just here showing appreciation to Man of Steel. And you guys, of course, and again, if you guys have not seen my video uh, that I have uh, on my YouTube channel, it's on the front page of my YouTube channel called The Case for Man of Steel, the most underrated superhero film of all time. Uh, it's like 27 minutes long, but I just kind of lay out why I love that movie. And yeah, how he'll be a god to them. I love that scene. I love that movie. And I love that there are other people finally starting to show appreciation to Man of Steel. It is, in my opinion, Zack Snyder's greatest work. Um, I wish they had done a direct sequel to it, but, oh, man, I love that movie so much. All right, Ben Rayner writes, Hey, John, hope all is good. All is good, Ben. Thank you for asking. I just rewatched Logan again today. Love that movie. And I think I love it even more. Here's my question. Between Logan and Joker, Hugh and Patrick were snubbed, in my opinion. My top three comic book movies, Logan, Batman Begins, and Joker. What is your question? Here's my question. Between Logan and Joker. Oh, like, which one do I think is the better movie? Oh, Logan. Yeah, Logan's the better movie. I love Joker. Don't get like, I loved Joker. I think Joker's great. But Logan was the best movie of the year it came out. And not only should it have been nominated, it it, it absolutely should have been nominated for Best Picture. And I think it should have been one of the front runners. And honestly, I think the reason movies like Black Panther and Joker were able to get nominated for Best Picture is because Logan came out first. Logan came out and it made a lot of people in the Academy, even those who are fans of comic book movies go, oh my God, like comic book movies have evolved to the place now that they're not just popcorn fare. Some of these are some of the best movies being made. 
And Logan was absolutely the gold standard of that. And Logan became the first comic book movie in history to get a nomination in the major category of best screenplay. Before that, no comic book movie had ever been nominated for best screenplay, which is one of the most important Oscars there is. And I think it's because of that, of Logan, that when Black Panther came along and when Joker came along, the Academy was now in a place of, yeah, I mean, these, these are movies that got to get nominated. I thought Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse should have been nominated instead of Black Panther, but whatever. It was still a great movie, so yay. But I think those ones were able to get nominated because of the work that Logan did. I, I don't think if Logan hadn't come out, I don't know that Joker gets nominated for Best Picture. If Logan hadn't come out, I don't know that Black Panther would have been nominated for Best Picture. Uh, I, I just I just don't know. But I think it was that movie that kind of laid that foundation. And listen, yeah, I thought I thought. Hugh Jackman should have been given a little bit more consideration for a best actor nom, but I absolutely believe that Patrick Stewart should have gotten a best supporting actor nomination. His performance in that is, is Oscar worthy. I'm not saying he should have won, but I, I absolutely think um, Patrick Stewart should have been nominated for that. Uh, that's just me though. All right. Tommy Woodward writes, uh, just watched half of Love, Victor. Nice. Uh, TV show spinoff of Love, Simon, which is actually quite nice. Love, Simon. Listen, Love, Simon was one of those movies to me that I was just like, okay, look, you know me. I don't like preachy movies, right? That's one of the reasons why I don't like Christian films is because I don't like preachy movies, but I don't like preachy of, of anything from any point of view. And Love, Simon, on its surface, didn't look like a neat character movie. It, it looked like a preachy movie to me. So I was a little against it at first. And then I watch it. I'm like, you know what? That's just a charming little film. Love, Simon is actually a really charming little film. And I did enjoy it. But I haven't seen anything from Love, Victor yet. Anyway, TV show spinoff of Love, Simon, not quite as good as the as uh, Love, Love, sorry, spinoff of Love, Simon, not quite as good as Love, Simon. I was looking forward to it. And so far, it's fine, but not great. Uh, maybe it'll get better. Eh. Yeah, it's a lot of shows like that. That's the tough thing about TV shows. I, I mean, it's tough. I don't like that you have to hang in there with a lot of TV shows. Now, I haven't actually heard anything about Love, Victor yet. I haven't heard anything about it, uh, about how good or bad it is. Yours is the first opinion I've heard about it. But hey, man, if you're giving it a shot, I'll keep my fingers crossed with you and hope it gets better. If not, ditch it and go find a new show to watch. All right, Star Wars Rocks writes, well, it's official from today. Uh, hmm. Uh, Gibraltar? Is that what you're trying to say? Gibraltar has just hit zero COVID-19 cases. Hopefully it won't start going up again. And John, the last time I went to the cinema was in January to watch 1917. That's a good last movie to have seen uh, with my parents. Not that I go that often. Anyway, and I got to apologize, guys. If you hear a little bit of background noise, it's because I got to turn on my air conditioner because it's getting hot here in the San Fernando Valley. Um, Man. That's a, not a bad one to make the last one. I think the last one I saw was not as good. I saw, what's it called? The Hunt. I think that's the name of it. The Hunt. Hold on a second. Let me just make sure that was the name of it. The Hunt, IMDb. Yes, The Hunt. That was the last one I saw, which was, that movie's just bad. That movie's just bad. And I was all excited for it because I thought the trailers looked hilarious. Uh, there is a lot of very gruesome action type stuff in it. But I that was the last movie. The last time I was in the movie theater was for a press screening for The Hunt. And that I think it was like the day after that, 
the announcement started coming that theaters were going to be shutting down. But the last time I was in the movie theater was seeing The Hunt, which is really too bad. That didn't leave a great taste in my mouth. I did not like that movie. And so I'm very excited about the idea of going back to the movies. But at least you, dude, at least you had a really good one to be your last film, 1917. That movie was great. All right. Next one up. Uh, Everything Entertainment Rights. I have to say... I didn't think Artemis Fowl was as bad as some places are suggesting. It's really rough, but some great universe building and use of uh, Celtic lore, Celtic lore. It feels like they had a good movie at one point, but edited it too much and it fell apart. Yeah, again, I still haven't watched it. And again, you know, we did a topic on the show um, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. It was before... Artemis Fowl, Defive Bloods, and King of Staten Island opened up. And we were talking, which one am I most excited about? And I was looking forward to all three of them. But I gave the nod to Artemis Fowl that I was most excited for Artemis Fowl because it's genre. So, I'm, you know, I'm a genre nut. But also because Kenneth Branagh was directing it, right? I was very much looking forward to Defive Bloods because I thought Black Klansman was the second best movie of the year the year it came out. And, and might be my new favorite Spike Lee film. And I love that movie. And the trailer for Defy Bloods look great, but you mix the genre of Artemis Fowl with the fact that it was Kenneth Branagh. I was most looking forward to that one. So imagine my heartbreak to start hearing how bad everybody thought it was, which is really surprising to me because when you got a great director, every director has a bad day at the office, but you know, you expect them to at least do something with it. Now, I haven't seen it yet myself, so maybe I'll even like it. I don't know. But, um, yeah, in hindsight, I should have been looking forward to Defy Bloods more, <laughs> which I really did like. I like Defy Bloods. I don't like it as much as a lot of other people do. There are a few just filmmaking problems with it to me, but it's still overall really good. And Lindo should be getting consideration for an Oscar for his performance in this because it's just stupidly good out of this world. All right, next up, uh, an anonymous viewer writes, I hate that Vincent looks like his uncle Michael Corleone and Anthony looks like his uncle Sonny Corleone. Godfather 3 would have been stronger if Andy Garcia played Anthony. Oh, no, it wouldn't. Uh, if he would have played Anthony Corleone and showed his uh, ascent to being Don, that would also axe the incestuous B plot. Uh, I don't think so. No, it's saying, I, I listen, honestly, I've never given that one ounce of thought. Listen, Godfather 3, quite frankly, gets way too much of a bad rap. I watched it again recently. You know, everybody say, oh, Godfather 1, 2, 2 of the best. Oh, but Godfather, it's just kind of understood. Godfather 3 is just terrible, though. No, it's not. It's great. Godfather 3 is great. But it did have one glaring weakness. Sofia Coppola. Who I like. I like Sofia Coppola very much. But, I mean, that is the one big glaring weakness in the film. But honestly, everything else about that film is fantastic. I'm not saying it's as good as Godfather 1 and 2. I'm definitely not saying that. But I thought that movie was really good. It's really good. And well, this guy looks more like that guy. So that, I, I don't know. I, 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 all I can tell you, anonymous viewer, is that I, I did not. I've never had that. As a, as a viewer of the film, I never had that as an experience of mine. Might have been an experience for you. And that's totally cool. I'm, but I'm just saying I've never had that experience. So I don't think that would have made the movie any better. Um, and I don't think the incestuous B plot was a problem. I just really think the Sofia uh, Coppola character and, and her acting was not great in it. And listen, when you get in a movie that has so much history and has such great performers in it, if you don't carry your weight, 
it really stands out even worse. Like, listen, if Sofia Coppola was surrounded by a bunch of average actors in that movie, maybe she wouldn't have stood out so much. But the fact of the matter is she's surrounded by Al Pacino and Andy Garcia and like all these, Chas Palminteri, like all these tremendous performers. And that's going to make a weak link stand out even more. You know, the director's daughter gets into, and so she turned out to be a terrific filmmaker too, by the way. Anyway, uh, I got to disagree. I don't think that would have made the movie better. I don't think that would have made the movie better. And I don't even think the movie needed to be that much better other than that, again, the Sofia Coppola thing. But that's going to be talked about for a long time to come. All right. John McKinney writes, uh, one of two. What do you think is more toxic when it comes to people who have different opinions on movie or any art form of art? Uh, outright shaming or making straw man arguments against them. Example, the straw man arguments of you, you're you blinded by nostalgia. You're stuck in the past. You're biased. You didn't watch it. Uh, you're a contrarian or you only like it because it's popular. Well, John, you know, I've been talking for a long time. The more toxic thing is straight up shaming. Right. But I've been talking the, the straw man thing. This is what I refer to as we as film fans have to stop making excuses why somebody else doesn't feel the same way about a movie as we do. And we all do it. I, I know I've done it. It's something we as film fans have to stop doing. It's like, oh, you like that movie? That's just because you're biased. Stop. No, you're just making up an excuse as to why you just can't accept that they watched the same movie you did and they felt differently about it than you did. Oh, you didn't like that movie? Oh, then you just didn't understand it. No, they understood it. They watched the same movie you did. They just came, they just had a different experience with it than you did, and they didn't like it. You did great. But it is it is a big piece of rot in fandom that we do this all the time. Our first reaction, because we're insecure. We feel like if somebody didn't like something we like, that's them attacking us and attacking our tastes. I love this movie. So if you didn't love it, you're attacking my taste. You're saying there's something wrong with my tastes. No, we're not. We're just saying that we all experience movies differently and you watched it and loved it and they watched it and they didn't love it. It's not. We got to stop being so insecure. I think that's really the root. When we make excuses why other people like something we didn't or didn't like something that we did what we're really doing is exposing our own insecurities. That I'm insecure. You have to like the same things I like because if you didn't like what I liked, you're saying something bad about me. I, I mean, that's that's where, and that is a terrible thing that we as film fans do and we need to stop doing it. I don't think that's the most toxic thing like the other thing, but, but it, us making excuses for why other people do or do not like what we like is something we shouldn't. Now, look, there are times like, um, you know, I'll talk about Man of Steel and I'll say, you know, there are a lot, there are a number of people who didn't like it because it wasn't the Christopher Reeve, gosh golly man, ma'am, I'll get that kitten out of your tree for you. But I only say that because they've literally said, like when you read through the reviews, there are people who have literally said that. They've literally said this was not the Christopher Reeve Superman. This wasn't my Superman. This wasn't the, the attitude of Superman that I grew up watching, blah, blah, blah. So I only say that not to make an excuse, but because that's exactly what they said. So I refer to that. But again, it's a trap all of us fall into, and it's a trap that all of us need to stop doing. Uh, and, and we need to catch ourselves when we do. So hopefully we start doing that. Thanks for writing that in, John. All right. Adam Hamlet writes, what the world needs now is a show like Quantum Leap. Regardless of sex, uh, send, uh, 
uh, race or religion. The show was about love, honest, honesty, and truth and justice. It was a show that no subject was off the table to talk about, uh, and you're left wiser and happier. It is crazy how much today people still fondly remember Quantum Leap. It was not really a show I watched much. Of course, I was a lot younger. What year? When was Quantum Leap out? Hold on a second. Uh, Quantum Leap. Let's see if I can find it. It was in 89. Yeah, so I didn't I didn't watch it a bunch back then. I mean, I was younger at the time, but I don't I don't remember a lot about it. I did watch a bunch of episodes. It ran for I think four or five seasons, something like that. But it is crazy how much today I still find a lot of people very fondly remember that show. Like re are really really fond of it. So people like you, Adam, so thanks for bringing that up. All right, Aaron writes I work for Odeon Cinemas in the UK, owned by AMC, and we are back up and running for the 10th of July, too. So, yeah, sounds like just Cineworld's going to be opening up on the 10th, not just Regal, other big major theaters. I won't be surprised at all to hear that AMC, who have given a vague thing saying that will be open by mid-July, I won't be surprised at all to hear AMC, which is the world's largest theater chain, come out and say July 10th we'll have everything open by, so... Again, I think it's good stuff if people act responsibly and these places follow proper safety protocols. I think it can be a good thing. Maybe not. Maybe it isn't. But that's just where my thinking is right now. So good on you, Aaron. All right. Diamond Dogs Puppy Rights. Good day, John and crew. Today's overlooked film is 2002's 25th Hour. Diverse cast headline by Ed Norton. I like. We actually, somebody else brought up 25th Hour couldn't have been more than a month ago, if you guys remember. Anyway, a diverse cast headline by Ed Norton. In my opinion, it's one of Spike Lee's top five best films easily. Great post 9-11 parable about paranoia, living in New York, and understanding self-worth thoughts. I did not have the same reaction to it. I'll say, let me bring up, because I'm forgetting the rest of the cast. Uh, do, 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 do. Because um, it had the, who's the other famous guy in it? Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's right. Philip Seymour Hoffman. But listen, Anna Paquin, Rosario Dawson. I mean, it was a stacked cast. Not one of my favorite Spike Lee movies. Like, I don't put it up there with Black Klansman or Do the Right Thing or Jungle Fever or, or things like that. But it's an enjoyable little film, you know, about a con getting ready to do jail time. Um, it, it's and what do you do and, and the environment that takes place in I like that movie again not one of my favorite Spike Lee movies because he's just got too many other really 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 exceptional ones but it is one of his good ones and probably one of his more overlooked ones as well and again a shiny example Edward Norton is actually one of the better actors out there and just doesn't do many big roles anymore uh, Ben Rayner writes hey John in my opinion the great X-Men movies <clears throat> X-Men X-Men 2, X-Men United, uh, First Class, Days of Future Past, and especially Logan, are better than 99% of the MCU movies. I don't know that I'd go that far. In my opinion, the only uh, exceptions you probably wrote for me are Infinity War and Endgame and maybe Civil War for me. Well, if that's true, then that's way more than 99%. <laughs> I mean, or I should say, then that should be way less than 99% because those three movies represent... 10% so uh, of uh, of the MCU. So what you probably meant to say are better than 90% of the MCU movies. Um, I don't know that I agree. <clears throat> I don't think I agree. I still think Avengers is the most important comic book movie ever made and is the best comic book movie ever made. I still think that first Avengers is the best comic book movie ever made. Um, 
then, you know, in the top three, I have uh, Logan, Avengers, and The Dark Knight. The, the, to me, that's the top three best comic book movies ever made. And you can have them whatever, in whatever order you want. But to me, that's the top three. Um, I don't... First Class is a movie I really like. But I only like... Like, I only really like about half of it. Like, the stuff that focuses on uh, James McAvoy, Michael Fassbender as uh, Charles and uh, Eric, that stuff in first class is awesome. The stuff with the kids is okay. The stuff with the kids is okay. And that's like a good half of the movie. So I, I don't put first class up there all that much. X-Men is the movie that got it all started. But is is X Men a top ten comic book movie today? I'm not. Sh I don't think so. It's a great comic book movie. It is the movie that is responsible for the golden age of comic book movies today. Absolutely. I do think X Men Two is still a top ten comic book movie. I think X Men Two is that good. Uh, Days of Future Past is also a top. I'd say three of those movies are top ten comic book movies. Definitely two of them. Days of Future Past and Logan, I definitely have as top 10 comic book movies. Maybe X-Men 2 might still be in there as well. But I, I would have a number of MCU films above those ones as well. But yeah, listen, Fox made some bad X-Men movies. But don't let that blind you to remembering they made some of the best comic book movies ever with their X-Men universe. Like, they made X-Men Days of Future Past, which is easily a top ten. They made Logan, which I think is a top three. You know, those classics that got everything going from the first X-Men to the second X-Men. A lot of people love First Class more than me. And then don't forget about the fact that they did the Deadpool movies as well. Something Marvel never would have done. Uh, yeah, so when people go, oh, I'm so glad X-Men is back with Marvel now because the Fox made... X-Men Origins Wolverine. Okay, yeah, they did. They made a couple of crappy ones. They did. There's no... X-Men 3. Uh, X-Men Origins Wolverine. There's no denying they made a couple of crappy ones. They certainly did. But don't try rewriting history and forgetting the fact they also made some of the greatest comic book movies of all time. And I just, I just think people forget that. I just think people forget that. You got to keep that in mind. Anyway, thanks for sharing that, Ben. Uh, Murray Reich writes, things are not looking good in Beijing, China right now. Uh, have bad feeling about the movies coming out soon. Let's hope they contain it uh, this time. Fingers crossed. Yeah, I mean, and Hong Kong, again, maybe a place that let its guard up way too soon. Or sorry, I said they let their guard down way too soon. Kind of like what we're doing in the United States. Letting our guard down way too soon. And again, I believe restaurants can be open. I believe grocery stores can be open. And I believe movie theaters can be open if you conduct yourself properly. But nobody wants to take individual responsibility anymore. I, I, I just, man, anyway, I won't, I won't go off on my soapbox about that, but you're right, Murray. I, I really hope things are going to be able to be contained. All right. Jesse writes, Hey John, have you seen the trailer for the new Hulu uh, film Palm Springs? I have not. I've heard about it, but I have not. Uh, it stars uh, Andy Samberg and Kristen uh, Miliotti. I'm not sure who that is uh, as two people stuck in a time loop living the same day. I know that plot bits that plot's a bit overused, but it looks really charming and is sitting at 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. No, I've heard good things. I've heard quite good things, but I myself have not had a chance to dive in and check it out yet or, or watch the trailer. But listen, man, I like what Hulu's doing. I mean, I've been saying for years, listen, I love Netflix. I do. 
but I probably open my Hulu app three times as much as I open Netflix. And it's been that way for a long time. I, I think Hulu is the most underrated player in the whole streaming wars landscape. Uh, I love Hulu, not just because of their original stuff, but also they do a great job of curating a lot of television and things like that. I go to Hulu a lot. By the way, I just started watching. I just watched the first episode yesterday of that new Hulu animated show, Crossing Swords. I don't know if this this show is going to be good long term, but the first episode is really funny. The first episode is really funny. <laughs> I'm a virgin and you scare me. Are you trying to make me more horny? Anyway, if you haven't seen it, you should go check it out. It's very, very rated R. It is not family safe, but I, I really did get a kick out of if you get a chance. Anyway, so I will check that out, Jesse. All right, next up, Kazam writes, top five favorite films of 2020 so far. Number five, King of Staten Island. Number four, The Way Back. Uh, number three, Onward. Number two, De uh, Bad Boys 3. Number one to five, Bloods. Uh, honorable mention, Sonic and Invisible Man. Top five worst of 2020. Uh, five, Extraction. Yeah, I didn't like that film. Number four, Lovebirds. Number three, uh, Bloodshot. Number two, Do Little. Number one, Artemis Fowl. Uh, honorable mention, Birds of Prey. It's mad. Yeah, I didn't hate Birds of Prey. I didn't hate Birds of Prey. For me, I think my number one film of the year is still The Gentleman. I, I now granted I am I'm a a fan of that style of movie. All right. I'm a fan of that style of movie. I love the lock stock and uh, snatch and that whole thing. So to see him come back and make a movie like this, I love the gentleman. That's still my number one favorite movie of the year. I think invisible man might be my number two. I think invisible man is my number two. I think onward would be my number three. Uh, I really did quite not the best Pixar movie by any stretch, but I still thought it was really, really good. I think number four would be to five bloods. I don't love it as much as, as, as much as many people, but it's really good. Um, and then number five, probably way back is probably what I put in there so far. Um, I think you got to mention, well, you did mention bloodshot and you were, yeah, that, that one was down there too. It's so weird that we're in June and we're still talking about only a small select group of films that can even qualify to be in our best of the year or worst of the year list. Uh, it tells you something, man. All right. Russell Amador writes, hey, John, not sure you've seen this news yet, but apparently one of the perks of the NBA resuming in July is that the players get to see advanced screenings of movies to be released. One of them is the highly anticipated Black Widow. Damn, I'm jealous. Again, yeah, we did talk about that off the top of the show. And again, I just think it's brilliant because for us as fans... That means Disney feels pretty good about this movie that these NBA players are going to like it. Number two, it's a nice little perk for the NBA players are going to have to go down there and play the rest of their season there. But number three, for Disney, you're going to have these huge, high-profile, famous people with tons of social media following, tweeting, man, I just watched, if they like it, I just watched Black Widow. It was awesome. You know, it's, so it's great free marketing for Disney. It's a nice little perk for the players. And for us as fans, it tells us that Disney's pretty confident in this movie. So it's a, it's a really nice story all the way around, Russell. All right, next on. Hand Shot First, 1992 writes, Hey, John, long time, first time. Thank you so much for being with us, man. I appreciate that. For the Oscar eligibility date, wouldn't movies in early 2020 just be eligible for the 2019 Oscars and the rest for the 2020 Oscars? I don't see how it really hurts next year's Oscars. Some movies are just eligible sooner. 
I'm not quite sure why you're bringing the 2009. I'm not quite sure what it is you're asking. Look, so here's here's the issue. Normally, for you to be eligible for the Oscars that happen in 2021, which is early in the year, usually in February, your movie has to be out by December 31st of the previous year. So if we're talking, if you want to be eligible for the 2021 Oscars, your movie has to come out between January 1st and December 31st of that year, of the previous year, of, of 2019, or of 2020, to be eligible for the 2021 Oscars. What they have done is they've changed the eligibility date from December 31st to February 28th. Now, that means any movie that comes out from January 1st of 2021 to February 28th of 2021 are now, instead of being eligible for the 2022 Oscars, they're now eligible for the 2021. That now means the 2022 Oscars are only going to have movies that have 10 months of eligibility because they're going to go from March 1st to December 31st instead of from January 1st to December 31st. So it's going to have a kind of a domino effect until we get to 2023. So that's kind of what we're looking at happening right now. All right, next up, Thomas writes, Hey, John and crew, it's finally happening. A game that got released what feels like a decade ago is finally coming to Nintendo Switch. The game is Pokemon Snap. Uh, I saw the trailer for the game today, and I can't wait to get it. Thanks, and have an awesome day. Well, I'm sure my wife is probably going to grab that because Anne really likes playing Pokemon. Although, every waking moment of her gaming time for the last number of months has been playing um Animal Crossing. Animal Crossing has like I mean when she's not working or doing something with me, she's she's got her Nintendo Switch playing Animal Crossing. And she's made a hell of a five-star island. I should probably do a play in chat of Animal Crossing just to show you Anne's island. She's done a great job with it. Uh anyway, I you know what? I actually just downloaded on the Switch. Um I went back and got uh Witch uh Witcher 3. I went and got Witcher 3. I had no idea it was on the Switch. So I just went uh, and got that and downloaded. I haven't started playing it on the Switch yet, but I'll probably do that uh, pretty soon this week. But I'm sure Anne will also be very excited about Pokemon because she's been uh, mostly Pokemon Go. She's not been a Pokemon person at all generally until Pokemon Go came along. And then she got really into Pokemon Go like a lot of people did. All right. Next up, Dave XP writes. This whole virus situation has made studios test and be more comfortable with releasing movies directly on streaming, especially their bad ones. So over under 70% chaos walking gets released directly on VOD. Now, this, this hasn't at all made, made studios more comfortable doing it. It's been just a fact of necessity. It's been a fact of necessity. Uh, because none of these movies have made the money that they could have made if they went into theaters. That's just a fact. Um, when it comes to Artemis Fowl, what became clear is that the student, they pretty much recognized, oh, yeah, nobody was going to go see this. This movie was terrible. It probably would have tanked. So let's get some value out of it and use it to prop up Disney+. Plus. But they got to be careful how often they go back to that well. If you go back to the well too many times, that's going to bite you in the ass. So they've got to be careful about that. So, no, they didn't invest all that money. Number one in making that movie and then all the reshoots they're doing on. They invested a lot of money in their reshoots on that because that movie was not turning out well. They completely redid it. They didn't do all that just to put it on VOD and lose their pants. They didn't do all that to put it out on VOD. There, there could have been an argument for that. Now, Chaos Walking, for those of you who don't know, this is a 
uh, a sci-fi kind of movie with uh, Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley. Uh, Tom Holland, of course, is our new Spider-Man, and Daisy Ridley is Ray from Star Wars. So it's a new kind of uh, sci-fi genre film starring those two. They produced it. Apparently, it was awful, and it was unreleasable. But they couldn't do any reshoots because everybody had moved on with their schedules. They finally were able to schedule reshoots, and they're spending... I've heard upwards of $70 million more million to, re to redo it. I mean, that number might be wrong, but that's the number I was hearing, like up to $70 million more million in reshoots, which is a huge thing. They can't afford to put that movie to VOD. If they hadn't done reshoots, if they hadn't done the reshoots and they just had this movie that they thought was unre unreleasable, yes, then I could have seen an argument that they could have put that straight to streaming. Uh, but with them doing all the research and spending all that extra money, they can't afford to put it on VOD. They just, they can't afford it. Um, so I'm going to go way, way under 70%. I'd say the likelihood is probably closer to like 15%. So still possible, still possible. 15% is a long way from zero. I just think very, very unlikely because of all that extra money they invested in it. Uh, anyway, good observation on that, Dave. All right. Evil John Campy writes, hey, regular John, have you seen the trailer for Warrior Nun? It's dropping on Netflix in July. I have never even heard of it. Let me just bring it up here. Um, War, uh, hold on a Warrior Nun. Let's see. Um... Nope, never heard of this. A young woman wakes up in a morgue with inexplicable powers and gets caught in a battle between good and evil. Sounds as generic as they as it comes. So no, I have uh, who's in this thing? Uh, don't know her. Don't know her. I don't recognize any of the names of anybody in it. That doesn't mean it's not good. I'm just saying I don't recognize the name of anybody in it. Um, so no, I have not heard of Warrior Nun. And uh, but I I might check. I'll leave this I'll leave this page open. I've got the page open right here. So I'll leave this page open for now and I'll, I'll, I'll check it out when we're done the show. I'll check it out when we're done. Thanks for putting on my radar. All right, next up, we've got S Beam who tipped in $20. Thank you so much for supporting the channel on that level, man. We appreciate that. John, my local theater has reopened at 25% capacity. Nice. And they are showing, oh, they're showing space balls. Man, I really want to go. They also have Raiders of the Lost Ark. So next Tuesday is $5 Tuesday. I may just have to send my kids to the sitters and have a double feature day. Dude, if you live close, let me know. I might go with you. Um, that sounds awesome. I mean, look, and that's what the theaters are going to have to do, right? They're going to have to open with some classic movies and probably some of those movies that were just starting their theatrical run when the theaters got shut down. Movies like Bloodshot, movies like Invisible Man, movies like Onward, um, you know, films like that. So it's probably going to be a mixture of some classics and whatever. You know, again, trying to look on the bright side, this will give a bunch of us in a, in a bunch of cities the opportunities again to maybe see some movies on the big screen we never would get to see on the big screen again. Like, I honestly, I, I can't think of when I get another chance to watch Spaceballs on the big screen. God, I love that movie. Oh, I love that movie so much. Good is dumb. I love Spaceballs so much. Now, we have a theater in Los Angeles that plays like the Raiders of the Lost Ark movies every year. Every year, they'll play uh, Raiders, Temple of Doom, Last Crusade. They'll play all three of them once a year. So we still get to do that. But a lot of these classics, what I'm really hoping for Though, personally, because I've heard some other movie theaters around the country that have already started reopening have been playing these movies. Lord of the Rings. It's been a long time, my brothers and sisters in film fandom. 
It has been a long time since I've been able to watch the Lord of the Rings on the big screen. I would love that. Again, I, I just looking on the trying to look on the bright side for a second, but that is one of the opportunities we're going to get uh, once the movie theaters start opening. So, I, so local, local Los Angeles movie theaters. Lord of the Rings. All right, next. Thanks for writing that in, SBM. I appreciate it. I hope you get to go do that double feature. All right, Jaron Morris writes, not based on who wins, but which fight will be bigger and more entertaining and you want to see. McGregor versus Masvidal, Diaz versus Masvidal 2, McGregor versus Diaz 3, or Covington versus Masvidal. For me, I say maybe Masvidal versus Covington because it would be very personal. Oh, no, the biggest, the biggest fight would be McGregor versus Masvidal. Um, Conor McGregor versus Jorge Masvidal would easily be the biggest fight. That would be the one that would sell all the pay-per-views. Masvidal would get destroyed. Conor McGregor will kill him. Masvidal is a not average fighter, not great fighter. He is a an above average fighter. Jorge Masvidal is an above average fighter. But you look at his record and you look who he's lost against. He's an above average fighter. He's an exciting, good fighter, but he's a great trash talker. He's awesome trash talker. And you put him in with like the king of trash talking with Conor McGregor and Conor McGregor is the biggest star in the sport right now. That's the fight that I would go to see. I, I honestly don't know with Diaz losing to Masvidal. I don't know that the, the McGregor versus Diaz three has the same heat that it did before. I don't know that it has the same heat after Diaz lost to Masvidal. Uh, Diaz versus Masvidal too. Eh, yeah, there would be some interest in it, I suppose. Covington versus Masvidal. I would like to see that fight. To me, that's the most interesting fight. The most interesting fight would be Covington versus Masvidal. Not to mention the fact that they used to train at the same on the same team and they always didn't like each other. And then Covington just recently left his team and blah, blah, blah. blah. Yeah, a lot of behind the scenes drama. But I do take all that out of it. I think that's the closest fight. I think, and I think I hate uh, uh, Colby Covington. I love watching Usman knock him out, but I do think Covington's a better fighter than Masvidal, so I think he wins that fight. But I do think that would be the most interesting fight. All right, uh, Michael Wyndham writes, "Hey John, big fan. I thank you very much, Michael. I appreciate that. I remember when you did that twenty-four hour marathon like it was yesterday. I remember it too, man. That was like that was the like I had a lot of different people come in and out and help me on that. But I remember Dennis and John Schnepp, Dennis Zen and John Schnepp helped me out the most with that. And it was great. Uh, also led me to being deathly ill, but it was good times. Good times. Uh, do you have any advice for me as I am doing a 24 hour live stream on Twitch of the last of us part two on June 19th for feeding America? I uh, got the charity idea from you. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, listen, you can't do plan breaks. That's the only thing I can tell you is plan breaks. Um, and if you can get somebody else to help you out, that would be great. But if you're doing a straight stream of the game, that's going to be difficult to do. Because like what I was able to do during my 24-hour marathon is I would be able to step out for like an hour or whatever and just let Dennis and Schnepp or somebody else kind of take questions for an hour or whatever and go sit on my recliner and pass out for 35 minutes and then come back in and blah, blah. And even then I still got deathly ill, but figure out ways every, every hour, take a 10 or 15 minute break. Every hour, hour and a half, take a 10 or 15 minute break. Just close your eyes, drink something, relax for a few minutes. 
um, it, it's not easy, man. It's not easy. So good on you for doing that. And I hope you're able to raise a lot of money for a really, really great charity. So good on you, man. I commend you for it. And I hope it goes well for you. All right. Next up, Mr. TJ Lynn writes, there was a time many years ago when I worship at the altar of Christopher Nolan. Those days are gone. In my opinion, he's actually an overrated director. His films are good, but overrated and lack the better uh, or, and, and in lack of a better word, pretentious. Mm. Controlling WB is an arrogant move. I, I got to disagree with you on that. But again, listen, that's the beautiful thing about film is that it's all subjective. I don't love every single one of his movies. Like I, I admit, I don't love Interstellar. I like Interstellar. I do. It's a, it's a good movie, but I don't love it the way a lot of people do. I think The Dark Knight Rises is good, but I think it's his weakest film. But man, um, Inception, I think, is glorious. The Prestige is fantastic. I don't love the end. I don't love the end of The Prestige, uh, but I think it's fantastic. Uh, Memento is incredible. Insomnia is probably my favorite movie of his. Um, yeah, man. Listen, but it's on the studio. Here's the thing. I don't blame actors asking for ridiculous amounts of money. I blame studios for giving ridiculous amounts of money <laughs> to actors, right? You take what they're willing to give you. And if Warner Brothers is in a position of saying, hey, Nolan really wants to keep that release date. And by the way, Dunkirk is fabulous. Got a, I believe it got Best Picture nomination. Anyway, Chris really wants to keep this, wants this movie out in July. He really wants to save the movie theater going. He wants to save the movie industry. He believes we need to keep it in July. Do we, and then it's up to Warner Brothers. Do we want to keep him happy or do we not? And if they're willing to, to do what it takes to make him happy, then great. Then do it. I mean, again, I don't I don't really blame actors for taking what a studio will give them. Uh, so I, I don't know. But listen, that is why, TJ, all film is subjective. You know, a lot of us love Christopher Nolan's films, but not everybody does because they don't have the same experience with it. A lot of us think he's one of the best in the world. You think he's overrated, and there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, yeah, I, I think he's truly one of the most gifted filmmakers in the world today. I, I really do. Maybe not the the best best, but he is one of the best filmmakers in the world today. But not everybody will think so, just like you don't. And there's nothing wrong with that, my friend. All right, next up. Uh, Adam Turchetto writes, how many people's Google Assistant answered when Chronicle came out? <laughs> yeah, because I got to remember I do it because when I do it, because I got my uh, Google assist Assistant over there. I'm sure as soon as I said, okay, Google, I'm sure probably a lot of people's like Google phones or whatever probably went off. I should be careful about that. I didn't even think about that, Adam. Um, Drewski writes, recently watched Foxcatcher All with Steve Carell and um, and uh, uh, Magic Mike Boy. Why am I freezing on Adam? Uh, um, Channing Tatum. I don't know why I froze on Channing Tatum's name for a second. Anyway, recently watched Foxcatcher. And by the way, um, Carell got an, I believe Carell got an Academy Award nomination for that film. Anyway, recently watched Foxcatcher with Steve Carell and Truman Show with Jim Carrey and got me wondering, why do comedic actors seem to transition to dramatic roles so well? Oh, it's rare. It's rare. Uh, for example, Tom Hanks, Steve Carell, Jonah Hill, Will Smith, and recently Adam Sandler. Yeah, but that's out of what? 300? 500? It's, it's not 
easy and it's not rare. I mean, Tom Hanks was really the first one to really do it. When Tom Hanks came out with Philadelphia and won his first Academy Award for Philadelphia. And then, by the way, Tom Hanks won the very next year as well. He won back-to-back Best Actor Awards. He won for Philadelphia, and then he won for... Um, uh, it wasn't Forrest Gump, was it? What was the, what was the second Academy Award? It was Philadelphia? Now I got to look it up here. Hold on a second. Uh, Tom Hanks. Uh, he won for Philadelphia. Maybe it was Forrest Gump that was the, his back-to-back. Yeah, it was Forrest Gump. Forrest Gump. So he so he was uh, nominated. He got his first nomination in 89. But that was in a comedy. That was for Big, my wife's all-time favorite movie. But he was always, he. I mean, he was the bosom buddies guy. He was, you know, he was the comedy guy. Then he comes out in 94, does Philadelphia, wins Best Actor. Comes out the following year with Forrest Gump wins best actor again and he's been nominated for three more since saving private ryan castaway beautiful day in the neighborhood but that was really the first time that that really happened in a long line of comedy stars that were never able to make that transition so yeah there are a handful of names but even though there are a handful of names they are still the minority that's still the exception uh yeah hanks did it Steve Carell was able to do it. Jonah Hill has done it to a degree. Will Smith has done it. He got an Oscar nomination too. Adam Sandler has done it. But again, that number still represents a very finite number. It reminds me a lot of a discussion I had with some friends about, you know, when you first become famous doing television, and that's where you're most known for, like that was your first big breakthrough. You became a TV star first transitioning to becoming a movie star is very, very rare. And I was having this discussion with a friend of mine and he said, well, John, I mean, uh, George Clooney did it. Cause of course, you know, he had ER, uh, Michael J. Fox did it. Who came from family ties. Will Smith did but Will Smith doesn't really count. Cause he was a music star before he was a television star, but, but you know, whatever. And he brought up like six, seven, eight names that were really, truly able that were truly big TV stars first that were then able to transition and truly become real movie stars as well. So he's like, there, it happened all the time. I'm like, dude, you just listed seven people out of like maybe a thousand that tried to do it. I mean, it's not a coincidence. Let, look at one of the most popular TV shows of all time, Friends. One of the most popular TV shows of all time. How many of them being amongst the biggest television stars in the world for a lot of years were really able to break out and have a truly high-profile, A-list, big-star movie career. One, maybe? Like Jennifer Aniston, but like, is did Jennifer Aniston ever become a true A-lister, big movie star? Or was she always just Jennifer Aniston doing some mid-level stuff? But okay, but let's say Jennifer Aniston. Out of that core of six, a bunch of them did some movies. None of them became legit big movie stars. And that was kind of the thing. And I think the same thing is like the big comedians and comedic actors that make the transition. It's not easy. It's you bring up a bunch of names, but those names kind of prove the fact that it's been so rare and, uh, and it's challenging still don't, they may have made it look easy, but don't be fooled into thinking that it is easy. It's still really, really difficult. Anyway, excellent question, Drewski. All right. 
Uh, next up, Star Wars Rocks writes, yeah, I meant Gibraltar in my eyes. Oh, no problem. I was like, Gibraltar? I'm like, what? I'm going to guess you meant Gibraltar. Anyway, yes, you meant Gibraltar. Thank you so much for the courtesy, man, of clarifying that. I appreciate that very much. All right. And our final question today comes to us from an anonymous viewer who writes, do you think Jurassic World 3 will get delayed? That's a good question because Jurassic World 3, remember, we just talked about this the other day. Hold on a second. Jurassic World Dominion release date as of right now it's supposed to come out a year from now all right june 11th i believe it is yes june 11th is when it's supposed to come out it's basically a full year from now but they only got four weeks into shooting before the covid pandemic broke out now we just did a story the other day that they are going to be the first jurassic world dominion is going to be the first major movie to go back into production in the uk very soon I believe they still have time because remember, even though they haven't been on set on set filming, they've probably been able to do a lot of post-production work even while the pandemic's been going on. I believe Jurassic World 3 Dominion can still hit its, its release date a year from now. They probably have another two, two and a half months of shooting and then they'll have like eight months to do post-production. I believe they can still make that release date. If it was like January of 2021, I would have my doubts. I would have serious doubts. But June of 2021, I think it can still make it. But there is a chance. But that summer, here's the problem though. If you don't do it in June of 2021, they'll probably bump it all the way to 2022 to get that summer release date. So my guess is that they will make their June of 2020 release date. But it is possible it gets late. I would say... 70% chance that they're able to hold on to that June 2021 release date. Because again, it's it's a full year away and they've already started and they've probably doing post-production work during the pandemic. So I'm guessing they're still going to do it, but still a solid 30% chance that they don't. That's my guess right now. All right, guys, that will do it. For today's installment of the John Campia Show, thank you so much, guys, for being here and making this show a part of your day. Special thank you to all you guys who sent in the questions, not just because you gave us great fun things to talk about, but also you supported the channel while you're doing it. And all of us here on the John Campia Show, thank you guys very, very much for that. Don't forget, the John Campia Show will return again tomorrow, 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Make sure you guys are here for that. All right, guys. That'll do it for me. Thanks so much for being here. Remember, guys, do the four main things. Stay smart, stay safe, take care of yourselves, and take care of the people around you. My name's John Campia, and until next time, my friends, bye-bye.